Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. On February 19, 1942, Executive Order 9066 changed the lives of 120,000 Japanese Americans in the U.S. by ordering the forced removal and relocation of residents as enemy aliens. This season, the Moab Music Festival shines a light on this shameful period in the U.S. history with the commissioning and premiering of Lost Freedom, a memory by Japanese-American composer Kenji Bunch, uh, featuring a renowned stage and screen actor George Takei, narrating with the Chamber Ensemble. And the new work is based on Takei's speeches, uh, personal writings, and recollections, woven together by Moab Music Festival director Michael Barrett. It's the inaugural work in the festival's new commissioning club, and this will be part of an evening uh, of Lost Freedom, Japanese-American Confinement in the U.S., a concert honoring Japanese-Americans and, in particular, three Japanese-American composers. That program is at the Red Cliffs Lodge on Saturday, September 4th um, at 7 p.m., and you can get uh, tickets at moabmusicfest.org. Uh, um, and so we welcome in a renowned uh, actor and author and activist, uh, George Takei. Uh, George Takei, it's such a pleasure to welcome you. Good to be chatting with you. Well, let's uh, maybe uh, have you tell a little bit of, the, of your story. You were five years old. Um, and exactly. As, as you write, uh, this is started for your family, or, or precipitated your family, um, by a, a knock at the door. Because this is FBI or government agents or somebody. Well, there's another more important uh, part of the background uh, that began before that, Um uh, as you know, on December 7, 1941, Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. And the terror of that bombing swept across the Pacific and rolled across the United States. And the next morning, President Franklin D. Roosevelt uh, declared war on Japan. And with that declaration, overnight, Japanese Americans, Americans of Japanese ancestry, my mother was born in Sacramento, California. My father was a San Franciscan. We children were born uh, in uh, Los Angeles. I was old as a, at five, or actually I was four years old at the time of uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And my brother was a year younger, and we had a baby sister who was an infant. And we were looked at with suspicion. We had nothing to do with Pearl Harbor. Yet, because we have these faces that look exactly like those of the people at Bomb Pearl Harbor, we were looked at with fear and outright hatred. And the, the phenomenon that uh, we are experiencing now with the uh, COVID pandemic, Japanese Americans were spat at and harassed on the street. Our homes and cars were were graffitied. The government came down immediately with a curfew on us. We had to be home by 8 p.m. and stay home until 6 a.m. And then the next morning, if we went to the bank to make a little withdrawal or a deposit, we discovered that our bank accounts were frozen. Our life savings were taken from us. And so we were financially straight-jacketed. My father's business failed. We couldn't pay uh, the mortgage on our home, a two-bedroom home on Garnet Street, and we didn't have to make those monthly payments now because we didn't have the money, and the banks didn't harass us. 
because they had a feeling that uh, we would be taken away. And sure enough, on February 19, 1942, just two months after uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, President uh, Roosevelt signed that executive order, 9066, which ordered all Japanese Americans on the West Coast, approximately 120,000 of us, of which our family was one, to be rounded up with no charge, no trial, due process, which is the central pillar of our justice system, simply disappeared. When you're arrested in the United States, you have the right to know why you're arrested, and then the right to challenge uh, the charge in a court of law. And there, they have to provide evidence that you are guilty of what the charge is. And then you're punished. In our case, that entire process was erased. We were rounded up and imprisoned. And as a five-year-old, I didn't know anything of that, uh, what preceded uh, that unforgettable morning. Uh, my father came uh, rushing into our, uh, our bedroom, my brother Henry and me, woke us up, dressed us hurriedly, and we were told to wait in the living room while our parents did some last-minute uh, packing in their bedroom. Uh, with my baby sister in a cradle with them. And so with nothing to do, my brother and I were just uh, gazing out the front window out at the neighborhood. And suddenly, we saw two U.S. soldiers marching up our driveway, carrying rifles with shiny bayonets on them. They stomped at the front porch and with their fists began pounding on the door. We thought that our whole house was trembling. My father came out, answered the door, and literally at gunpoint, we were ordered out of, out of our home. At gunpoint, in America, with no charges, with no trial, we were ordered out. Uh, of course, my parents uh, apparently had uh, received an earlier notice, and they were prepared. My father gave my brother and me uh, small boxes to carry. He hefted two heavy-looking uh, uh, suitcases, and we followed him out onto the driveway because the uh, soldiers ordered us to. And when my mother finally came out, she had our baby sister in one arm and a huge duffel bag in the other, and tears were streaming down her cheeks. That morning is indelibly impressed into my memory. You were taken to uh, Santa Anita Racetrack, I believe, as a temporary tell, tell, and they shipped you off to Arkansas. Tell us about the experience at Santa Anita. Yes. The uh, camps were being built, and so they took us to our temporary uh, imprisonment. We were loaded onto uh, a truck that was already packed with uh, other Japanese-American families, and uh, we were loaded there and driven downtown to Little Tokyo, the Japanese-American uh, community downtown. And we were dropped off at the Buddhist temple where many, many other people had been gathered. And then a row of uh, buses rolled in, 
and we were boarded onto those buses and driven out to uh, the uh, uh, racetrack, Santa Anita racetrack, and then unloaded, herded over to the uh, stable area. And each family was assigned a horse stall to sleep in that was still pungent with the stench of uh, horse manure. My parents, I know, felt degraded and humiliated taking their three young children into that filthy horse stall. You're listening to Access U-Time. We're very pleased to be joined uh, by George Takei, who is, uh, of course, uh, actor, author, activist, and uh, he is going to be in Moab on September 4th, 7 p.m., Red Cliffs Lodge, part of the world premiere of a new piece which is based on his speeches, uh, writings, and recollections. Uh, It's about the confinement camps for Japanese Americans during World War II. And uh, this work is a chamber piece by American composer Kenji Bunch, and the narrator will be George Takei himself. Uh, So you can get tickets to that and anything at the Moab Music Festival at moabmusicfest.org. So, uh, George Takei, one of the things that struck me reading a little bit about your experiences, you you had some kind of normal experiences there in Arkansas, right? You're you're a kid. Um, But uh, one thing that struck me, you're in school, I think, uh, start the day as kids still do today, reciting the Pledge of Allegiance, except uh, you kids would look out through the window and see the barbed wire. Exactly. I didn't know the Pledge of Allegiance. I learned that for the first time in Arkansas. There were two camps in Arkansas. The other camp was called Jerome, and ours was called uh, Rower. And uh, there at school, in a black tar paper barrack, we began the school day every morning with the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. Ironically, I could look out the window as I'm reciting, and see the barbed wire fence out there, the soldiers marching with with uh, their rifles, and tall sentry towers with soldiers aiming their guns at us. And I'm saying the words, with liberty and justice for all, completely contradicting those words with the reality that I was uh, saying those words in. At that time, I wasn't uh, aware of that irony, and it's much later in life, after we were released from the camps, that uh, I am struck by the insensitivity and cruelty of uh, the government making little children recite such uh, contradictory lies at a very tender age. And it was in Arkansas that another outrage, again, completely contrary to what uh, we Americans believe in, happened. Immediately after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, young Japanese Americans, like all young Americans, rushed to the recruitment centers to volunteer to serve in the military. This was an act of patriotism that was answered with a slap on the face They were denied military service and categorized as enemy alien, which was absolutely irrational. Uh, They were neither the enemy nor alien and incarcerated 
with 120,000 other Japanese Americans. It was an outrage to begin with. But then, a year into that imprisonment, in early 1943, the government realized that there was a wartime manpower shortage in the military service. Now, they needed us. But their dilemma was how to justify drafting people that they had categorized as enemy aliens and put in barbed wire prison camps for service in the U.S. military. How to do that? It was filled with so many contradictions, and yet they dealt with it. Their solution was what they called a loyalty questionnaire. Talk about another outrage. After they took everything from us and exposed us to all that harassment and taking our bank account, they want us back in the army to serve. And they are now demanding, after all this cruelty, that we sign a loyalty questionnaire, which was to be responded to by everyone in camp over the age of 17. Man or woman, 17, or an 87-year-old immigrant lady. It was, again, really insensitive, cruel, and stupid. And so there were two questions in that loyalty questionnaire that became confusing and turned all 10 camps into turbulent uh, questioning. Question 27 asked, Will you be willing to serve in the United States military on combat duty wherever ordered? This after we had first volunteered to serve in the military, uh, right after uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. They were making that kind of demand. And particularly for my parents, they were being asked to abandon their very young children, leaving them in imprisonment behind uh, these barbed wire fences, and bear arms to defend the nation that's holding their children hostage. It was a preposterous demand on the part of the government. That was the first controversial question. The second controversial question was question 28, and it was one sentence containing two different ideas. It asked, Will you swear your loyalty to the United States of America and forswear your loyalty to the Emperor of Japan? The Emperor of Japan. We're Americans. We didn't have a loyalty to the Emperor of Japan. But the government assumed that we had a pre-existing racial loyalty to the Emperor, which was racist. So if you answered, no, I don't have a loyalty to the emperor to forswear, that no applied to the first part of the very same sentence as well. Will you swear your loyalty to the United States? If you answered, yes, meaning I do swear my loyalty to the United States, that yes applied to the second part meant that, aha, you were confessing that you had 
a non-existent loyalty to the emperor. It was a no-win question. You lost with a yes, you lost with a no. It was an ignorant, illiterate, and totally uh, nonsensical question. And just uh, infused with cruelty on people that had been tortured already. For my parents, they they answered truthfully. It, there was no nothing deceptive about it. They answered with two no's, no to 27 and no to 28. Because of that, those two no's, they were now recategorized as disloyal. And the disloyals had to be moved from the regular internment camp to a newly redesignated segregation camp for disloyals. Outrageous, insulting, and crazy. We had to be moved from Arkansas camp to the California camp to the lake, which was now newly redesignated the segregation camp for disloyals. And this camp was not like any of the other nine camps. It had three layers of barbed wire fences. The tall sentry towers were now equipped with machine guns aimed directly at us. And the perimeter was patrolled by armored jeeps and a half a dozen tanks. Tanks that belonged on a battlefield. That was another stupid thing to do and a wasteful thing to do. Those are costly war equipment, and they had that kind of patrolling going on to goad people that were already outraged. It was a shame on the government and enraging of the people that were so incarcerated. And Tui Lake, the segregation camp, became a fractured camp. People didn't trust each other, as certainly, and not the government that we were fractionalized, and young men who had initially volunteered to serve in the U.S. military were now radicalized by the behavior of uh, the United States government. They became pro-Japan, and they staged bonsai rallies. They uh, jogged early in the morning, and I remember waking up in the morning to hearing the distant cadence of these joggers using the Japanese cadence, not the one, two, three, four, but washoi, 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 off in the distance uh, jogging. And then they would end their jogs with banzai, banzai, banzai. And they wore those headbands with the uh, military rising sun with the rays uh, radiating out uh, on their uh, headbands. These were the uh, Japanese-American equivalent of the Black Panthers or the uh, Symbionese Liberation Front. The government created these radicals. And, of course, there were others that, like my parents, who answered the uh, loyalty questionnaire truthfully, and, but they were not pro-Japan or radical. And uh, the radical tried to get as many... Uh, of the other members of the camp to join them. And uh, they worked with 
uh, a little bit of cajoling, but also force. And some people were beaten. And so the camp internally was fractured. But the uh, camp guards wanted to squelch the radicals. And they didn't want to arrest them in daylight because that would cause a riot. So they staged midnight raids, pulling out young men from their uh, units in the barrack. And I remember hearing uh, the mothers or their wives or their other people screaming and crying and yelling, don't take him away, he's, he's a good boy, he, he's innocent. But they would take these uh, young men away, and they forced the uh, people that knew uh, construction before the war to build a concrete jail that we, uh, we in Kent referred to as the stockade. And it was a jail with all the bars and so forth. And they were taken to the stockade where they were tortured. I've been on pilgrimages to uh, the various camps, and certainly to the ones that we were incarcerated in. And at uh, Tuvi Lake, we saw brown splotches on the concrete wall, dried blood from decades before. Today, I guess it would be 80 years ago, I went on those pilgrimages about uh, 30, 40 years ago, and I saw these brown splotches. It was bristling. Tuesday Lake was bristling with military armament, and it it became symbolic of the menacing camp that uh, persona, um, that became a symbol for the cruelty and the irrationality of the whole internment. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with a renowned actor and author, George Takei, and we were talking about his experiences as a child in uh, those internment camps, those confinement camps. Uh, we're talking about this period of uh, history, World War II, when uh, the president, President Roosevelt, uh, issued an executive order changing the lives of 120,000 Japanese Americans by ordering the forced removal and relocation of residents as enemy aliens. Uh, This season uh, of the Moab Music Festival, they're shining a light on this shameful period in U.S. history, commissioning and premiering Lost Freedom, a memory by Japanese-American composer Kenji Bunch. And it features George Takei's Speeches, personal writings, and recollections based on that. And Church Decay is narrating with the, a chamber ensemble. And that performance is a part of a special concert, which will happen on Saturday, September 4th at Red Cliffs Lodge, uh, 7 p.m. as a part of the Moab Music Festival. You can get tickets to this and other uh, events at Moab Music Festival by going to their website, moabmusicfest.org. I might also add that you mentioned in the introduction, you said I'm an author. I currently have a bestseller out, a graphic memoir called They Called Us Enemy. And so uh, for the people that will be joining us at the uh, Moab Music Festival, it might be uh, a good uh, way to prepare yourself for that evening by knowing something about the uh, narrative. A book called They Called Us Enemy. When it was first published, it was number two on the New York Times bestseller list. And it remained there for something like 17 weeks. And it's still selling like the proverbial hotcakes. <laughs> All right. They Called Us Enemy. It's a graphic novel by George Takei. Great. We'll direct people to that as well. Let's take just a very brief break. We'll be back. 
Support for Utah Public Radio comes from our members and Idaho National Laboratory, where researchers are using machine learning to teach computers to recognize critical infrastructure from satellite imagery to help first responders prepare for emergencies. More information available at inl.gov forward slash news. Support also comes from Sunset Valley Mortuary, presenting a night like no other Veterans Benefit Concert to raise mental health awareness. Bring a chair and enjoy music, food, and entertainment. August 27th at Elk Ridge Park in North Logan from 6 to 9 p.m. Information available on Facebook slash Off Center Band. This week in This American Life, Ken was in his 60s, living in a nursing home, when his friend David started publishing his thoughts about music. Like this one, about a lefty Frizzell tune. Oh man, take me back. Take me right back to the Arizona desert. That kind of music gets you. So help me, it does. You got the moon and a sucker singing like this. Girls walking around. The music that connects us this week. Saturday morning at 10 here on Utah Public Radio. Make an appointment with Public Radio's favorite family doc on the next Zorba Pastor on Your Health. It'll be a jam-packed hour on healthy living, including this recipe for cold cucumber soup. We always have a great time. So will you on Zorba Pastor on Your Health from PRX. Tune in Sunday afternoon at 1 here on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is uh, actor and author, activist uh, George Takei. And uh, he is uh, going to be in Moab on September 4th. He'll be narrating with a chamber ensemble a new piece commissioned by Moab Music Festival. It's by American composer Kenji Bunch. And it is based on uh, George Takei's speeches, personal writings, and recollections. George Takei, as I mentioned, will be narrating. And uh, that's part of the Moab Music Festival, which begins August 30th, runs through September 16th. The performance we're talking about is September 4th. Uh, Tickets to this and any of the other events at moabmusicfest.org, moabmusicfest.org. So, George Takei, I wonder if we could uh, talk a little bit about... Maybe how this has shaped you. Of course, your family, as many families, uh, came back from the confinement camps, and business is wiped out, right? And uh, no more house, yes. and and just some trials there. You've talked about uh, how you, as a teenager, did, got very interested in, I think, in civics, and uh, and and tried to reconcile the experience that your family had had and you had had uh, with the ideal of America. I wonder if you talk a little bit about that. I owe so much of that to uh, my father. He was the one who lived through the darkest breakdown of uh, our justice system. And yet, he was able to teach me the significance of participation in a participatory democracy. He told me about the ideals of democracy, equal justice under the law, due process, those are significant, greatly important words. But it's we, the people, who give meaning to it. We are fallible human beings, and we make mistakes. And if those people that make mistakes 
are involved in the process of government, then it inflicts that mistake on uh, many people, innocent people. My father was an admirer of uh, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He said he was a great president in the uh, 30s when there was not only an economic depression, but a spiritual depression in America. People were, they, they were unemployed, they lost their homes or apartments, they were hungry, and they were depressed. And the president had to galvanize the nation in order to bring us back to what we were. And he said that then, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. But when Pearl Harbor was bombed, that was a sneak attack. We weren't prepared for it. And Roosevelt then became aware of the whole West Coast that was still unprepared and vulnerable, and he became fearful. And when the populace was completely swept up by war hysteria and racism, he got swept in with it. There was another leader. He was a California leader at that time, a name I think you'd recognize, Earl Warren. He was the Attorney General of California, and he had his eyes set on running for governor, and he needed and he needed an issue, and he saw that the people of California were swept up in the lock up the Japs issue, and so this top lawyer of California, the Attorney General decided to get in front of that issue and made an amazing speech. He said from Sacramento, California, he said, we have no reports of spying or sabotage or fifth column activities by Japanese Americans. And that is ominous because the Japanese are inscrutable, that racist generalization. And because we can't tell what they are thinking, as a preventative, it would be prudent to lock them up before they do anything. Lock them up before they do anything. The top lawyer of the governmental system in California saying, lock them up before they do anything. The absence of evidence was the evidence for him. And he won the election, became governor, and was reelected twice, and then appointed to be the chief justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, where he presided over the uh, Brown versus the Board of Education uh, matter and uh, became renowned as the liberal chief justice of the United States. But... All during his life, he never owned up to his California history. He wrote a memoir that he ordered to be published only after his passing. And in that memoir, he said, the greatest regret I have is the role that I played in the imprisonment of Japanese Americans during the Second World War. He didn't have the guts He wasn't enough of a man to own up to what he did to 120,000 people, destroyed their lives, made us start from 
my parents had everything taken away from them. When uh, the war was over, we were penniless. Everybody had nothing. The government gave each one of us a one-way ticket to anywhere in the United States and $25 to reconstruct our lives from nothing. My parents decided to go back to Los Angeles. It was still a hostile place. Our first home, we couldn't find a place to stay. We couldn't, my father had difficulty finding a job. Our first home was on Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles. And for us kids, by that time I was eight, my brother Henry was seven, and my baby sister was four. And for us, the most terrifying part of the internment was when we were released. Skid Row was the most terrifying, chaotic, and smelly place. The strongest sense was the stench of human excrements everywhere, on the sidewalks, in the hallways of the rooming houses, and the alleys everywhere. And scary, smelly, ugly people staggering about or leaning on the walls or sprawled on the sidewalk, and some would start fighting, and they didn't have energy enough to remain upright. They'd fall down and, and, and wrestle each other on the sidewalk. And the shrieking of uh, the police cars and the ambulance all day and all night long, it, the chaos, chaos was unbearable. And I remember my baby sister, when something terrible was happening, said, Mama, let's go back home. For her, home was behind barbed wire fences because that was so much better than the chaos and the stench and the horror of Skid Row. Behind the barbed wire fence, we had order, we had regimentation, enforced regimentation, but that was for her what life was all about. That was home. And for my parents, my father was a, a successful high-end dry cleaning uh, business uh, uh, right by uh, Bullock's Wilshire, the fashionable art deco district of uh, uh, Los Angeles. And his first job was as a dishwasher in a Chinatown restaurant. Only other Asians would hire us. But because he was a block manager in both Arkansas and at, at Tudor Lake, people still came to him for leadership and assistance and guidance. And they wanted help in finding uh, a job or uh, a place to stay. So he had two jobs, dishwashing late at night or in mid-morning if uh, he was needed. But he opened up an employment agency in Little Tokyo. And all these people, and many of them were the immigrant generation uh, that, uh, that was not uh, fluent in English. And so he helped them find jobs. But the kinds of uh, jobs that he could find uh, for them were menial jobs, like dishwasher or janitor or gardener, which all paid a pittance. 
And he knew how desperate these people were, and he couldn't charge a fee uh, more often than not. And my mother made him quit that after a, a couple of months because she said, the children have to eat too. And so he found uh, a very cheap uh, dry cleaning uh, shop in East Los Angeles, an all-Mexican-American barrio. And uh, he bought that cheaply, and he built it up and sold it at a profit. And then he bought, uh, uh, again, cheaply, another uh, grocery store in Watts, the African-American neighborhood, and built that up and made a nice profit there. And just when the the Japanese-American community was getting back on their feet and buying homes and businesses, he switched to real estate, and he became quite successful at that. A good timing, and and because of the uh, relationships he had as um, uh, the block manager during the war. So I am really in awe of the resilience and the tenacity of my parents. And even under those harsh conditions that uh, they lived through, my father said, resilience isn't just sheer strength. It's also the ability to find beauty under harsh circumstances, to make your own joy and, 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 and happiness. And as a block manager, he uh, negotiated with the uh, camp command to borrow uh, a record player for one night. And uh, we uh, cleared out the uh, mess hall after dinner the tables were all pulled back, and the benches were uh, lined up along the walls, and the teenagers had their dances. And our barrack happened to be right across from the uh, mess hall. And so my mother put us to bed, but I went to sleep hearing the big band sound of the 40s, uh, Benny Goodman, Tommy Dorsey. And that sound would come wafting over the night air to our barrack. And I was lulled to sleep. And so I relate to the music of the 40s. And my my father was a baseball player uh, before the war. He was a member of the, of the San Francisco base, Japanese-American baseball team. And he traveled the Bay Area playing other Japanese-American teams in San Jose or uh, Sunnyvale or uh, uh, Oakland or Emeryville. And so he decided... The uh, young men need uh, something to do. And so he uh, got a plot of land that uh, wasn't uh, developed as part of the camp and built a baseball diamond. And and occasionally he was the guest pitcher. And uh, we all went out to uh, root for Daddy. Yay, Daddy! That was a good pitch. <laughs> <laughs> so he had a way of uh, interpreting resilience in uh, in, a, in a singularly my father's way, uh, it wasn't just uh, grinning and bearing it, but to survive. And for that, you need to look to tomorrow and how to make tomorrow meaningful. Find that beauty. Find that joy. Make that joy or make that beauty. And 
as it turned out, many people, we had many people who were artists and, or, and craftsmen. And at the Japanese American National Museum in uh, Los Angeles, uh, an affiliate of the Smithsonian, uh, we have exhibits of uh, the artwork and the craft work that was created under the harsh circumstances of imprisonment. That's an important point, about, and what a great example of resilience from your father. I'm curious about yourself. Do you, you know, of course, a, a long, distinguished, um, successful career, you know, Star Trek, many other productions, um, books, um, career continuing, of course, right now. Do you think that those experiences that you had as, as a young person molded resilience in you that contributed to your success later on? I do think. The uh, imprisonment as uh, a five-year-old made me who I am. That was a formative experience. And my father, his philosophy, and the discussions that we had after dinner. We had, you know, my, I was blessed with an extraordinary man for a father that I realized later in life. Uh, so many Japanese Americans of my parents' generation were so wounded by that experience that they never talked about it. They wanted to forget it. They didn't, they didn't mention anything except the fact that they were in camp, and that's in quotes, in camp with their children or with anybody. And we developed a, a Broadway musical called Allegiance on that subject. Uh, it was a, a great hit, and uh, so many people, and particularly Japanese Americans, came backstage to tell us, to, tell me how deeply uh, moving it was, and how uh, impressed that they, uh, and how much they learned about the internment. And they'd tell me their parents or their grandparents were in camp, and so I'd just to uh, further that conversation, I'd ask them, "Oh, which camp were they in?" Their faces are a complete blank. They don't know. And so to help them out, I would uh, follow up with, uh, well, where, where was it? Was it in Wyoming, Idaho, Utah, Colorado, the deserts of Arizona? They have no idea where their parents or their grandparents were during the war because they didn't talk about it. And I am so profoundly grateful to my father, who did talk about his incarceration. And he told me beyond that about American democracy, that it's a participatory democracy. And we have to be actively engaged in that, because those ideals, as noble as they are, are dependent, existentially dependent, on the people that give meaning to those words. So we have, you know, a complex history of a belief in our, the ideals of our government, of our democracy, but also how vulnerable it is. But because America was changing in the 80s, in 1980, the United States Congress formed a commission called the Commission on the Wartime Internment of Civilians. And in August of 1981, 
I testified at that uh, commission hearing. And uh, in the uh, performance at the uh, Moab Music Festival, I quote in the latter part of that testimony. And they gave their findings. And in 1988, President Ronald Reagan, on behalf of the United States government, signed the Civil Liberties Act, which apologized for that incarceration and paid redress. So our democracy can right itself, but it is, as I said, existentially dependent on the people that are big enough to recognize a mistake and apologize for it. Because we just have the framework of our democracy. We, as citizens of a democracy, have the responsibility to make it meaningful, to give the truth and the strength of those words reality. We have the responsibility to keep our democracy strong and true and shining. Well, I, I know I need to let you go here, but uh, just w- one last question. I'm very curious about this. Um, and uh, that is, uh, how are you feeling about about things with regard to, you know, we're all guardians of the democracy. We all need to be participating. Are you hopeful with the way things are going? Nervous? What? <laughs> how are you feeling at this point? Well, there are lessons to be learned from history. And from this chapter of American history, there is an important lesson to be learned. But not all the people learn that lesson. So here again, in the time of uh, this COVID pandemic, ignorant, racist people go around attacking fragile, elderly Asian Americans and throwing them down on the hard concrete uh, sidewalk. And one person in Oakland, one old man, uh, fell so hard that he was killed. And other people here in New York, uh, uh, women are attacked in the subway stations or in other uh, darkened streets at night. These are all cowards and racists who... uh, just on the basis of race, see the enemy. They are un-American and they are a disgrace. So lessons are being learned by some, but there are others that we must educate. And that's why I consider teachers the important pillars of our society, because they teach the lessons of history in order to avoid the repetition of it. Our democracy is as strong as or as fragile as the people who make it work. And when I was five years old, it was very fragile. Well, a good place to uh, end the uh, conversation. Fascinating. And uh, George Takei is uh, coming to Utah. You have a chance to uh, go and see him uh, in performance uh, in a work based on his his writings, his speeches, and uh, and memoirs. Um, it's 
And, and my graphic memoir. <laughs> and your graphic memoir. Let's uh, mention that I, as well. my commercial. They, they called they us called enemy. They called us enemy. Yes. And that is out and available. Uh, they called us enemy. So this is at the Moab Music Festival. It's a work uh, called uh, Lost Freedom, a Memory by Japanese-American composer Kenji Bunch. And this will be George Takei uh, narrating with a chamber ensemble. And it's a part of an evening of uh, uh, pieces um, which is called Lost Freedom, Japanese-American Confinement in the U.S. It's a concert honoring Japanese-Americans and in particular three Japanese-American composers. That is at the Red Cliffs Lodge, Saturday, September 4th, 7 p.m. You can get your tickets to that or anything at the Moab Music Festival by going to their website, moabmusicfest.org, moabmusicfest.org. Uh, and you could uh, check out uh, George Takei's website, um, georgetakei.com, is it? Yes, it is. And, uh, and of course, we know uh, George Takei's Facebook page is a very popular uh, place to go and a uh, lively place. Um, George Takei, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed chatting with you. Culture's one sky. Sky watcher Leo T here as we look up, look around, get a little lost in space with a little stargazing from our home planet. As a sign of late August, sparkly Cassiopeia is high in the northeast above the Moab Rim and the Wasatch Front. Its W pattern tilting up, and below its starry exotic Perseus is reaching up. The highest part of Perseus includes the ethereal and delicate double cluster. To find it, look below the lowest two stars of the Cassiopeia W. They're the faintest two, then scan below in the same direction the W points you. You're looking for what seems like a small spot of enhanced Milky Way glow. Binoculars will help greatly. Or if you're having trouble making it out, look for the shape of Marge Simpson's head. That's right. It looks like, to this sky watcher, a, a crystalline outline of Marge Simpson's head and glorious hairdo. Now that the moon is out of the evening sky, it's prime Milky Way time if you can get in the dark. After dark, the Milky Way runs from Sagittarius in the south, up and a bit left across Aquila the Eagle through the big summer triangle high overhead with Vega, and on down through Cassiopeia to Perseus, low in the northeast where the double cluster is. Also in the evening, Jupiter and Saturn shine in the southeast in late twilight after dark. It's a good time to look as they are at their closest and brightest of the year. And a little closer in our own solar system, China's Mars rover completes its primary mission as it roves along analyzing different rocks, dunes, and other features, and continues exploring the area which is thought to be below the shoreline of an ancient ocean. Also on Mars, JPL and NASA's helicopter Ingenuity launched a successful 12th flight, giving us a bird's eye view of Jezero Crater's diverse rugged south region, and topping this, remember the Curiosity rover? It's been on Mars nine years. NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory released a breathtaking panorama of the inside of the Gale Crater as snapped by the Curiosity rover. The clip shows where the rover has been and where it's going, and what we've learned in the last decade. It is really cool. This includes the fact that on a clear winter's day when there's no dust in the air, you can see for 20 miles. On Skywatcher Leo T, it's one sky, many cultures. And as we travel a bit further southwest into the deserts and forests of New Mexico and Arizona to the land of the Mescalero Apache. This Mescalero Apache mythological account of creation relates that from the very beginning of time the earth already existed 
and was in a process of continual change which continues to be seen as the manifestation of the cyclical powers of nature. Mescalero myths and stories up to this very day account for the knowledge that the ancestors had of the earth, animals, plants, sun, sky, moon, and stars. From the very beginning, we are told there was an awareness of the inner forms of the animals and plants and the other elements of nature. So keep looking up, enjoy the magic, look around and get a little bit lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T. On UPR, Utah Public Radio, with translator stations statewide and streaming live. Next time on L.A. Theatre Works, Kate Burton and Matthew Reese honor the centenary of Welsh poet Dylan Thomas in our brand new production of his famed Play for Voices. The shops in mourning, the welfare hall in widow's weeds, and all the people of the lulled and dumbfound town are sleeping now. Under Milkwood by Dylan Thomas. Next time on L.A. Theatre Works. Friday night at 9 here on Utah Public Radio. For women, having a seat at the table does not mean having a voice. When women speak, they are interrupted more, listened to less, and perceived as less authoritative than men. I'm Dr. Susan Madsen, founding director of the Utah Women in Leadership Project. In our next podcast episode, we'll explore what it takes for women to be heard. Listen in September at utwomen.org. service of Utah State University's College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSUFM Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Ridgefield, Moab, KUST Price, KCEU, and streaming online at upr.org.